Welcome, welcome, welcome to Crucible. Good to see all your beautiful faces. Um, can we, uh, uh, we're going to jump into the text here in a minute. We're, we're, we just finished up a, a four-week series we were calling The Foolish Way. The Foolish Way of Jesus in contrast to the way of this world. And t- technically, ever since, if you remember, we've been going through Luke uh, for a while, and if you remember, around at the end of chapter 9, it was around 9.51, that's when Jesus, it says that he sets his face toward Jerusalem. He turns the gaze of his ministry, the journey of his ministry, toward Jerusalem. And ever since, there's this, in every gospel really, but sp- specifically Luke, there is this large thematic and tone change after he does that. And so we've been on that journey toward Jerusalem for the last couple of chapters. Um, and uh, per, it, he kind of takes this turn right here, and we're going to be for eight weeks, for the next eight weeks, we're going to be wrestling with Jesus the prophet. Uh, because he, it, it started in 12. 12 is really kind of a hard, it, it, it's a chapter full of hard sayings. And the one that we're going to deal with today is perhaps some commentators say it's the hardest. And, uh, and for the next eight weeks, uh, we're going to wrestle with um, hypocrisy and self-exaltation. We're going to be wrestling with the cost of discipleship. We're going to be wrestling with uh, repent or perish, repent or perish and bear fruit. I mean, it's some of the hardest uh, things that Jesus has to say. And, and I just want you to understand emotionally behind the text, what's happening is, you know, he's moving now closer and closer and closer toward the baptism of his suffering, toward the cross. And that, I, I would venture to say, if you, if that, it, that's affecting the way that he's communicating with his disciples, the way that he's communicating openly with the public. And I want you to remember that backdrop of the, the journey that they're on, the way that they're going. Um, so we're going to be in Luke 12 uh, this morning, 49 to 59, uh, uh, starting our, our eight weeks in Jesus the prophet. If you want to take a moment to read the text, uh, and I'll transition you to talk with a few people around you about it, uh, to do a little bit of the, uh, the intro work on getting, you know, digging around in the text, um, go ahead and take a moment to read it, and uh, I'll transition you. If you'd, if you'd be willing, I want to do some, some kind of open sharing, but bef- before we do that, I just wanted to say this passage is, for me, just of little value. This passage is one of the, is like a peak example, an amazing example of why I love and we love to preach through the Bible. Uh, there's, there, just to be clear, there's nothing wrong with doing like topical series and topical study or whatever and, you know, let's do a four-week series on generosity and money or let's do, you know, six weeks on, I don't know, certain issues or whatever. I just, but you understand if you go a lifetime only doing topical studies, you never study this passage. Never, ever. There is no... Uh, a topical study that you could imagine where you would, in your creative mind, think, you know what would be a good thing to, pa- to study? This passage. <laughs> there is no topic. And when you preach through the Bible, you have to confront passages that you would otherwise be blind to. You see? 
and it, and it forces you to do what, what some, some theologians call integrative theology, which is you, you confront, even within the text, divergent evidence. And you, and you have to integrate the whole picture of Scripture. If we're just going to all the time say Jesus is uh, the Prince of Peace, peace on earth, goodwill toward men, and that's your picture of Jesus, you will never, in your own like imagination of what to study next in your life, you'll never think of this text, ever. But when you just preach through the text, you have to confront these kinds of things. You have to figure out what it means because it's uncomfortable. So uh, some, some uh, what did you guys talk about? Just some, some open feedback. If, you've got, if you want to share something, just raise your hand. Uh, and we've got mic runners that come around and share with you. Well, um, just the, the last part of it was, even before I started reading the whole passage, the last part caught my eye. Because I've, I've, this has always like caught my eye whenever I've come across this passage. The idea of like the urgency of like your time of reckoning is coming. Yes. Like you need to do something. You know yes. what I'm saying? You're going to be yes. judged, and so you you need to do a plea bargain or something. You need to yeah. you need to fix. You know yeah, what I'm saying? Right. You need to make some peace. That's like, right. That's right. Because if you don't, like it's it's going to be over. That's and right. So like that's the urgency I get from this passage. Like do something. That's exactly right. And that's the urgency, that's, that's the emotional urgency that's meant to be communicated. That's great, Irby. Um, and, I'm, and I'm so glad you mentioned it that way because so often the end of this text is, is, is ripped out and communicated as just kind of like a relational advice, like between you and a friend. Um, be, be reconciled before you like go to, go to court or something. If you're on your way to court, just, just reconcile with people quickly. And look, that's great relational advice. I think you should do that. It's just not what he's talking about. The adversary, the magistrate, and the judge in this text is all God, all of it. You know, Romans would say, while we were yet enemies of God, Christ died for us. He, when we were not reconciled with God, he is our adversary. And, and in line of this text, you know, you, it's, it's almost like you see storm clouds and you know a, a storm is coming so, and you react appropriately. And it is just that easy to see the times that we're in, to know you're, you're standing in this world. And as long as you turn a blind eye from interpreting those times and you do not inter you have a selective attention about the things that you decide to interpret and observe in this world, you walk toward judgment alongside your adversary. Be reconciled quickly. Yeah. There's another one. Hello, Lucas. Yes. Um, I thought it was interesting, verse uh, 51. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, but I tell you I bring division. Um, I felt that maybe he was saying, because like the people in that time maybe thought of him as the Messiah and what they viewed the Messiah as, as someone to bring like, Mm -hmm. Oh, we're going to be awesome. We're going to be the Israelites and the God's people. Yes. Um, but he really, he, what I think he's bringing truth to them, and through that truth, it'll actually cause division because people's hearts aren't going to be ready for that. That's exactly To right. either accept it or to just completely be like, nah, yep. I, I ain't about that. Even the immediate audience who hears what he just said, they're divided on what they think he just said and whether they agree with it or how they're like responding to it. That's exactly right. And, and, and in another place where they talk about this story in Matthew, it actually goes further to say he, he's, not just, he's not bringing peace and he's not just bringing division, but a sword. I come to bring a sword. 
which is like this, this like symbol of war in that time. I come to, I come to bring war. I mean, how do you, I mean, anybody else like wrestle with that? How do you integrate that? Prince of Peace. <laughs> peace on earth. Christmas is coming. This is what we... It's fascinating. We're going to deal with that a lot this morning. Maybe one more. Gigi? Unless somebody else already has it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, he talked... Uh, um, when you're talking about the peace and yet Jesus speaks of the sword um, and then you can turn your eye, blind eyes and mm -hmm. agree with um, he said earlier on he spoke of the fire which he's referring to the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit he is the author of truth mm -hmm. he leads us to all truths so the time is going to come where we'll be led by the truth while others will be led with a, a spirit that's anti of the truth. Yes, a competitive spirit. That's exactly right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And th that's where all the sword and the wars mm -hmm. and the conflict will arise from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I am, I am. I don't know if you guys remember. Uh, I think it was two months ago. I gave a talk here. And... I'm just going to repeat to you verbatim a line from that talk. You ready? The primary work of the devil is to divide and oppress, but the primary work of Jesus is to liberate and heal. Liberate and reconcile. Yeah? We have one more over here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Run around. Nishu, this servanthood. Look at him just burning calories. Love this. <laughs> Um, one of the things here is he says he's constrained until the baptism, whatever this baptism is, is yeah. completed. And when we were talking about it, it's like, well, we know he was baptized by water, by John. That should have already happened yes. in the story. So, one, what is the baptism? And it's constraining him somehow. Yes. Um, so yes. he has something t that he can do after that's done. Yes. Yeah, there, there is like this, th you almost feel Jesus being reserved under constraint, like you said. And, and even in those first two lines, I've, I've, I have come to bring fire on the earth. Oh, and I can't, I just wish it would be kindled now. I wish it would burn now. But I have a baptism to undergo. I gotta wait. I have a baptism to undergo. And what constraint I'm under until it is completed. This man that we call the Prince of Peace who came to bring this peace on earth? How do, we, how do we integrate these things? How do we see these two things together? Well, today I wanted to explore how before real peace can come to life, false peace must be put to death. And Jesus comes to divide our false peace by offering a new way, a second vision, and by confronting the evils that we have made treaties with. I grew up on a, on a farm until I was 10. I was not a farmer, as almost everybody here thinks I was. That's okay. I grew up on a farm until I was 10. My, my parents uh, um, bought a farmhouse, so we were surrounded by, uh, by a farm, and we had a, we had a barn, and we had grain, big, huge grain silos, and 
farm equipment coming through all the time, but we didn't own the farm. We didn't own any of that stuff. We didn't have animals. We just lived in the little house there. And um, I told one farm joke here, I think, like many years ago, and then everybody, and I'm proud to be the farmer, the local farmer. Thank you. I'm, this is my place in the community. I'm excited about it. So, uh, but but uh, for 10 years, I lived on that farm, and we had no, we had no cable. We had no uh, video games. Um, we did have like a little TV with the bunny ears, the antenna, and uh, and you know so you get like three or four you get three or four channels, and then other than that and and even with the even with the bunny ears, my family had this uh, TV ticket system. Have I talked about this before? You, you you my mom had this huge roll of like carnival tickets, like red booster carnival tickets, and every week the each kid got five tickets. And each ticket bought you 30 minutes of TV. And you got a week allowance of five TV tickets for 30 minutes. So, and you could use them how you wanted. I mean, if you wanted to space it out and do like one every day, watch one show every day. We had PBS, so it was like Wishbone, School, uh, school Bus, Magic School Bus, that kind of stuff. Or if you were smart, like me, you would save all of them during the week so that you could blow them all on Saturday morning, about two, two and a half hours of TV Saturday morning. You get all the best shows. But then you have to, like, forego TV during the week. And other than that, other than those five TV tickets, all we did was just play outside, build stuff, make stuff. We had one dog and 22 cats on the farm. <laughs> the, the, we didn't, none of the cats were inside. Um, they, they were just like an un, uh, 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 kind of like unmonitored population that kind of was in flux all the time. And, uh, you know, we, lo- we, we started out trying to name them unique things. Like one of them was named Simba. That was like one of our favorite ones. But then toward the end, when we, you get into like 15, 20 cats, one of them was named Bazooka. One of them was named Brown Couch. I'm not kidding. We named a cat Brown Couch. You just run out of creative names. So... When I turned 10, I was in, I, was in uh, I think I was in second grade, and I went to spend the night at a friend's house for the first time. And my best friend's name was Lucas. We really hit it off in preschool, because we had the same name. And we were best friends. And I went over to Lucas's house, and we, we went down into the basement where his room was, and he had this box attached to the TV, which he called a Nintendo. And, uh, and he described to me, he explained to me that this box was one of several pot products in a category called video games. And uh, so, you know, we tried it. I thought, it was, I thought, you know, let's give this thing a try. And he got out this little cartridge that had a title on it that said Ninja Turtles. And we put that, I don't know if you guys remember that game. It's just like, you're just running, it's just 2D and you're just like on a team and you're running in one direction the whole game. Uh, amazing, amazing. I lost four hours of my life playing that game that night. And I think by the end of it, I think it was like 10 o'clock, but for me, for us, it felt like it was probably two in the morning or something. And we turned it off and I was like, we're probably going to bed. We're probably going to sleep or whatever. And he showed me another box attached to his TV, which he called cable television. And I was like, this is fascinating. What's going on here? And so we, we watched some cable television. And when we started watching, I said, bro, listen, I could you spot me? I did not bring my TV tickets. Is it okay? And I don't even know how many I have at home. Could you spot me some of your TV tickets? Is it cool? And he was like, what are we talking about? <laughs> and I was like, wait, what? You don't have TV tickets? He said, no, I just, we just watch. What are you talking about? You just watch? Yeah, yeah. We just watch however much TV we want. That's right. You're right. What was I talking about? You're right. 
and we just watched TV for like hours and listen. I went home. I went home not with new memories and uh, uh, a stomach full of sugar and uh, a, a newfound, you know, friendship with, with Lucas. I didn't just come, go home with those things. I went home with an alternative vision for the way life could be. <laughs> I went home with a, with a new understanding of the way that life could and, in my opinion, should be. I had received a second option on how to live. And believe me, when I got home, when I got home with that second vision, son was divided against mother and mother against son. <laughs> son was divided against father and father against son. You see, division is, division is in its literal meaning, two visions, die vision, two visions. And Jesus comes to a world with one vision. Jesus comes to a world with one way and offers a new vision. Jesus comes to a world and offers a new way. And a line in the sand has been drawn through history. Which side are you on? And that's how the Prince of Peace can also be the most controversial and divisive figure in human history. But the division is a blessing. The division is a gift because it is only ever caused by the combination of the proclamation of good news and the freedom and choice of those who hear it. Jesus comes to divide because he comes to relentlessly invite free people to know and trust and love and be saved by him without ever overruling their free will and choice. You understand, if, if, if God, in, in His very nature and being, it, it coming in the person of Jesus Christ, if He would have chosen to just overrule everybody's choice and volition, to coerce everybody in, into, into this new way, into this new vision, there would be no division. There would just be a trading of one for the other. But at the same time, in so doing, if that, if that division is not allowed, if those two visions are not allowed, and every single person given freedom and choice, God sacrifices the ability to receive true love and worship from those who choose Him. If the choice is not there. The lack of choice and the robbing of freedom, the lack of choice and the robbing of freedom is something that, that human leader, a strategy that human leaders have tried to employ for, for ages to create order out of chaos. But don't you start to believe it's peace? Uh-uh. You see, the lack of choice and the robbing of freedom can never create true peace, can never create the shalom of God, ever, ever. See, before real peace can come to life, false peace must be put to death. And while you choose to surrender your life to Jesus, others won't. Others in your family, others in your workspace, others in your neighborhood, others in your classes, others are your friends. And therein, the moment that happens, the moment you surrender your life to Jesus and other relational connections you have do not, therein lies immediately an underlying, an undertone of division. I was sitting on my couch Sunday night watching the Cubs game. I'm a huge Cubs fan. I'm from Illinois. Um, so, you know, we don't have to talk about what happened this week, but I am a huge Cubs fan, 
And uh, I was watching the game Sunday night at about 9 o'clock. I got a text. I had just put my son down to sleep, and I, got, I was sitting on the couch watching it, and I got a text from my old high school best friend who was, he texted me. He said, I'm in Clearwater. Come to Clearwater to this bar and watch the game with me. <clears throat> and I haven't, I haven't seen him in a long time. We haven't talked in a long time. And I was like, oh, I should go do this. But I just put my son down. I couldn't go do it. <laughs> I was like, there was no way I could do it. So I just texted him, and I said, hey, I can't do it. Thanks for inviting me, whatever, and we just talked. And the rest of the night, and honestly, the rest of this week, I've just been thinking about him. Because we were, when I, I moved to this new town when I was in fourth grade, and he was the first person I met, and we were best friends from, like, fourth grade all the way through senior year of high school. And, I mean, spent every day together, so much of every single day together. And right after senior year of high school, I surrendered my life to Jesus. And would you know, for the last decade, I've talked to him three times. For a decade. After spending so much of my life with him. And I know, I am aware, I know, he has been in the Tampa area three times since I've been here. And he didn't, I, I had no idea the first two times. He didn't even contact me. And I think I was just like, was thinking about that Sunday night. And then I was thinking about it Monday and Tuesday. And then I was studying this passage. And I just started to realize that I have never, ever lost more relationships to any decision or act in my life than surrendering my life to Jesus. Never. And I've, listen, I've done some jacked up things. I've done some, some bad things to people. I've betrayed people. I've made bad choices in my life. And not, n none of them even uh, 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 compare, remotely compare, to the amount of relationships that were fractured, damaged, severed, lost by my decision to follow Jesus. It is by far the most divisive decision I have ever made, and probably is for you too, to follow Jesus. I tried to remember this week the names of all those people, all those friends that I lost, and to grieve over that loss for every single one of them, but at the same time to be grateful to be grateful that I was pursued and given the choice <laughs> to surrender my life to Jesus and even at the, the, the grieving the loss of some of those relationships to still be grateful that they have retained the freedom of choice. That that's better. That's better. Because God is going to relentlessly and patiently still invite them. Still, still, still. Sometimes through me, when I have enough courage. <laughs> Sometimes through me. And one of these days, maybe they'll come around. Maybe they'll say yes to Jesus. And it will be better. It will be better than for them to not have the freedom of choice. Some of those friendships were broken just by the choice to give my life to Jesus, to this alternate vision of life. But some of those relationships were further broken, if I'm honest, because when I surrendered my life to Jesus, I could no longer turn and blind my eyes from some of the evils that we had made treaties with. And you have to start, you know, you, you got to start saying things that people don't like, confronting things that people don't like. You see, it's not just a division that comes by offering a new way, but those who choose that new way will no longer be able to uphold the false peace that is required by, saying, by, saying, by blinding your eyes to the evils that you've made treaties with in all of its forms. Sometimes it gets divisive, 
But kingdom people cannot silently coexist with the evils of this world. Cannot make false peace, silent coexisting false peace with the evils of this world. In the spring, I read the biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer by Eric Metaxas. It's the kind of thick book or whatever. It's a, and it just, to this day, to this day, just the stories of the church, the relationship, uh, you know, the, just the development of the church under Nazi Germany is both inspiring and haunting, horribly haunting. I'm going to tell you just one year, one year in the life of the church under Nazi Germany. One year, 1933. January 1933, Hitler came to power as the chancellor uh, in Germany. And two days after he came to power, Dietrich Bonhoeffer came on the radio. Uh, and, he, and he did this public warning against uh, uh, Hitler. Some of the fears he had of Hitler. The type of leader he might be. The type of nation they might become. And while he was doing that radio broadcast, in the middle of it, he was cut off mid-sentence. And to this day, they don't know who, who cut him off. Three months later, Bonhoeffer was the first one, the first voice of the church resistance to Hitler's persecution of the Jews. And at that point, the persecution of the Jews wasn't like death camps and trying to abduct people. It was just taking away a few, what people would see as a few minor civil rights. Just a few small things. And Bonhoeffer was the first voice to come out uh, uh, in, against Hitler's persecution of the Jews. And he said this famous quote, The church mu must not simply bandage the victims under the wheel, but jam the spoke in the wheel itself. Five months later, the national church, the German national church, voluntarily adopted the Aryan paragraph, meaning that pastors, church officials, uh, uh, of Jewish descent were to be removed from their post immediately. The, the national church adopted this paragraph into all their bylaws that effectively removed any pastor leader participant from uh, 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 membership in the church or any level of influence and leadership in the church if they were from Jewish descent. Three months after that, a rally of 20,000 German Christians demanded the removal of the Old Testament because it was heresy, because it was too pro-Jew. Six months later, the resistance, uh, uh, largely led by Bonhoeffer, the resistance to this like overwhelming uh, 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 nationalism and the church's part participation and complicity to that nationalism. Uh, Bonhoeffer was leading this movement, that start, the resistance that started to be called the Confessing Church. And it's, six months after that, that 20,000 uh, person gathering happened, the Confessing Church came out with a, a document. They called it the Barman Declaration. And listen... They, they felt the need to put out an official declaration, an official signed document from these resisting churches, a part of the confessing church, this very, that had this very crazy, very nuanced, very brave idea. You want to know what that whole declaration was about? Here's the peak idea of that declaration, that Christ, not Hitler, was the head of the church. That's, the, that's what the statement is trying to say, that Christ, not Hitler, is the head of the church. And would you believe that only 20% of pastors signed on to it? In Germany, 20%. The majority, and listen, when you, when you kind of read that stuff and you hear about that stuff, if you don't really dive deep and you just kind of hear a couple statistics like that, you would be maybe led to believe that 80% of the pastors in Germany were super pro-Hitler and really like did, did, you know, did not like Jews and they were totally in, in line with Hitler's vision for the country and all this kind of stuff. 
That's not the case. That's actually not really not the case. It was actually only a small percent, maybe, of that 80% that were like very pro-aligning themselves, very pro-Hitler, totally loved everything about them. The majority of that 80% that did not sign on to this document and joined the German National Church and went along with this stuff were just trying to keep the peace. They didn't want to be divisive. They thought maybe they could, they could uh, uh, progress slowly over time, peacefully. Work from within. Go along with certain things. On April 12, 1963, eight white pastors asked Martin Luther King Jr. to delay his civil rights demonstrations in Birmingham. And King went ahead and did those demonstrations anyways. He was arrested. He was taken to jail. And four days later, he penned a letter that to those, written to those eight white moderate pastors that we now know as the letter from a Birmingham jail. And those eight pastors were, listen, they, they were, if you read, there's this, this little book, I think it's called Blessed Are the Peacemakers in 2001, which kind of actually studies and chronicles the, the lives of these eight white moderate pastors and, and tries to look at, and if you actually read that, they weren't, the, these weren't like eight bigoted uh, uh, against the civil rights movement's pastors. They were like, don't do this, don't demonstrate here. If you actually look, some of them uh, were actually doing amazing things. They, they were very socially progressive. They were uh, for the civil rights movements. They were working for the civil rights movements. They were trying to partner with a lot of these leaders. Some of them even received uh, uh, horrible emails and death threats on their lives for some of the things that they'd done in the past. And these eight pastors, they pinned this letter to Dr. Martin Luther King because Birmingham, Birmingham had just elected a brand new uh, city government. And their, their thought was, listen, don't do these demonstrations because we think they'll, they might bring about violence. And let's give, these, uh, th let's give the, this new city government a chance uh, uh, to, to, to work toward, peace, toward, toward progress peacefully. And the assumption there is, what we have right now is peace. We have peace right now, let's not shake it up, and let's keep working toward progress peacefully, because that's what we are right now, we're, we're in a situation of peace. And here's just one little excerpt from, uh, uh, from King's letter from a Birmingham jail. I had hoped that the white moderate, and he's, he's, trying to, he's using these eight guys kind of a symbol to talk to the, to the whole country, but he's keeping these eight pastors in mind. He said, I hope that the white moderate would understand that the present tensions in the South is a necessary phase of the transition from an obnoxious negative peace in which all men, uh, an obnoxious negative peace in which the Negro passively accepts his unjust plight to a substantive and positive peace in which all men will, will respect the dignity and worth of human personality. Actually, we who engage uh, in, in this direct action are not the creators of tension. We who engaged in this direct action are not the divisive ones. We merely bring to the surface the hidden tensions that are already alive. We bring it out in the open where it can be seen and dealt with. All through history, listen, you will find Christians on the wrong side of issues of justice because they didn't want to be divisive and they wanted to keep the peace. But what peace? What peace? some fake peace, some pseudo-peace that creates victims, that rolls over people. You see, before real peace can come to life, false peace must be put to death. Amen. 
Yes, Jesus is a peacemaker. He is a prince of peace. He comes to bring peace on earth. But the only way to that peace is through the destruction of the peace treaties that we've made with evil. It is a hard-fought peace. It is a struggle for peace. And it requires His sword. Before real peace can come to life, that false peace, it must be put to death. The worship team wants to come up. I've just got one last. I kind of want to... I just felt this response from the text for me, and I wanted to invite you into it. You see, as missionaries, especially incarnational missionaries, we, we are a community of missionaries, and we, 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 we try to embed ourselves in among people who don't know Jesus. We try to live life among people who don't know Jesus, to, to proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom of God to places uh, uh, where, where He is not known. That's what we do. That's what we're about. We're a community of these missionaries. And we often self-identify as peacemakers, trust builders, and good news deliverers. But I think there's a warning in here for us that what it looks like to be a faithful missionary in every context is not necessarily to be liked by everyone. And to create this sea of love and unity in every place that you go. You see, sometimes it's okay to be divisive when the kingdom itself is ushering in and exposing a division. And to actually try to fight against that division and try to fight for like this kind of like corporate love and unity is actually to betray the mission of the kingdom. Sometimes it's important to be set apart because you are set apart ones. Sometimes we have to revisit how to love but to not be friends with the world. It is so tempting not to look, not to consider, not to interpret the times, like interpreting the weather and then responding appropriately to what we see. But I just think, I I don't think we're going to have the authority, the discernment, the wisdom, the courage to confront publicly, to, 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 to bring a a public confrontation to things in this world that we have made truces with in our personal life. You cannot confront systems of violence or institutions of violence if you are quick to harbor rage against other people, if you've created a truce with anger in your own life and heart. You cannot critique Wall Street or corporate America or even other churches' use of resources, just and equitable use of resources, if you yourself have not excelled in the gift of generosity, in the grace of generosity, if you have not been been a conduit of resources to, to mission in the world, you have forfeited your right to confront the use of resources in this world. If you've made a truce with greed, Parents, you won't be able to confront physical, physically abusive parenting that you see in the marketplace or in your neighborhood or even in your own family if you yourself parent through tactics of emotional fear and control instead of through love and discipline. If you've made a truce in your own heart with fear and control, a treaty with fear and control. College students, you will not be able to confront the epidemic of sexual assault on campus if you have made a truce with pornography in the quiet of your apartment, you cannot. You won't be able to see it, discern it, know it, have the courage to confront it. 
with any power. Men, when, when, we, when we read this, this, if you haven't gone and looked at it at all, this hashtag Me Too thread that's been going online on social media for, for some time now. When, when we read, when we go online and we read this endless amount of, of vulnerable, courageous, heartbreaking stories from women who have experienced sexual assault, when we read that, we take a long, hard look in the mirror Ask God to expose our hearts, the things maybe we don't know, and we repent from the truces that we have made with lust and the objectification of women before we take one step in solidarity with other women, before we offer one voice, one word in solidarity with other women. See, before real peace can come, this false peace must be put to death, and it starts with each of us. It starts with each of us. And Jesus himself was under that, this, this constraint. And I think what that constraint is, is this false peace, this world of false peace. This world of truces with evil. And I think that's why he's like, I came, I came to bring fire and I want it here now. I want it here now. I want the judgment of God here to actually, to, to renew all things in the peace, the hope, the shalom of the kingdom of God. I, I can't stand this anymore. And, he, and, he, and he's almost feeling constrained by that. He wants it so bad, but, but uh, 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 I have a baptism to undergo. He himself was on his way to secure the promise of shalom, to secure the future of the kingdom, to secure the promise of that kingdom with the baptism of his own suffering on the cross. And now we, 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 we find ourselves at the foot of that cross in the shadow of that sufferings and we're invited now to share, share in the fellowship of that suffering as we now live in anticipation of that future by confronting these treaties with evil in our world. And that one day we live in anticipation of that future day when he will come in glory and he will make right every wrong, and he will bring the finality of fire. He will bring eternal peace, true peace, his peace, and he will receive what belongs to him. He will restore his kingdom here forever, and we will, we, we will rejoice in that moment. We will rejoice in that work with him forever. Amen. And on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. And when you eat it, you do so in remembrance of me. And he took the cup. He said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And when you drink it, you drink it in remembrance of me. this morning when we come to the table we trade the bondage and the oppression of false peace, fake peace, shallow peace, filled with the treaties and the truces that we make with evil and we come and we see the, 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 the Savior who came and suffered to release us from that false peace and send us as true peacemakers in this world.
to confront evil in ourselves and in this world that he's come to save. So when you're ready, the elements given for you.